Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We're telling the amazing stories of people with type 1 diabetes all across the world. Uh, and I have a very special guest today, uh, introduced to me uh, through the Beyond Type 1 team, uh, Mr. Dave Marr. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for calling in and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Dave, uh, you have a particularly interesting story uh, of your life, which is actually chronicled by this American life. We're going to get into that, but the way my podcast works, no matter who the guest is, we kind of kind of have to start a diagnosis. So why don't you tell us how you joined, uh, the type one diabetes family? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I was 12 years old in 97, 1997. Um, and so it was like the summer, like right as seventh grade was winding down and I was about to start eighth grade. Um, so it was like in June, I think. And I had been just peeing a ton and drinking a lot of water. Like I'd be over at a friend's house playing. And in the course of a couple hours, I would use the bathroom like six times. And um, I had remembered that there was a kid in my second grade class when we all had to have, um, uh, you know, like a bathroom pass to leave the, um, right. the classroom. And he was the exception. He could go whenever he wanted. Um, and we were told that this was cause he had diabetes. And so something in my brain when I was older, like connected these things. And I asked my dad who was in med school at the time, I was like, do you think that I might have diabetes? And he was like, probably not like, you know, you're going through puberty. There's like a lot of things changing. You might just have like an overactive metabolism or bladder or whatever it was. Um, but we'll get you tested. And so I got tested. Um, and then uh, yeah, I saw an endocrinologist who was a guy with Marfan syndrome oh, where, wow. yeah, he has like, uh, you know, long fingers and kind of a big forehead and it just like, uh, it, he felt like a, and he was super, super nice and like not condescending, which is a big deal when you're a kid. Um, and, but the, just this like friendly skeleton of a man, like telling me, that yes, you have diabetes and like what that meant. And they played this, this videotape of these like two, like bright blonde kids, like, like sliding down slides on the playground and being like, diabetes is this slide down a slide. And then like these weird cutaways. Um, so yeah, it was a very like, uh, just surreal introduction to like, I actually remember 
and I, and I, I told this story at a storytelling show once about like the day before or like the week before because there's this limbo like after getting the test and before finding out the results where it felt like it felt like if I had diabetes that would make me a very different person and that mm. would like be this new way of identifying myself and uh just like trying on like I'm a diabetic guy like you know I'm what what if this is and and I don't even know like what it meant but I remember one night I went across the street to my neighbor's house to like uh like shoot baskets on their basketball hoop and in my mind I was like making this wager of like okay if I make this shot I do not have diabetes and then missed the shot and I was like okay best two out of three <laughs> and just and did that until like I was not good at getting the majority of shots in so it took me to the best of like probably 17 or something uh and then I was like okay great I don't and then I'm like walking back uh home and I'm and I'm walking through my garage and looking in the like window of my parents car but like using it as a mirror and just like looking at myself and being like, this could be the face of someone with diabetes. <laughs> and yeah. And it felt very like dramatic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, it- so that was like the beginning and it was the end of the school year. And I knew another actual pretty good friend who had it and he had an insulin pump. And so he was helpful. Um, and, but then pretty quickly I moved, uh, from Oklahoma to Cincinnati, Ohio. And, so a lot of things had changed and uh yeah that first year i was like yeah those those first couple of years actually of like middle school and then high school like spending a lot of time in the nurse's office and lying down when i when i needed to and having snacks in classes and right. i remember in in english class in 8th grade there was a like i i forget why it got to this point but this girl was like how come he gets to have snacks in this class like every day and i was i just relished so much being able to like have a really valid reason that i knew would make her feel bad <laughs> um and so i was just like well i i have diabetes and she just like immediately shut down and uh you got to felt- you got to shame her down like with, with yeah your- <laughs> yeah to like, own her in that moment how many like I feel like it's so relatable. Like how many people you just like, you finally reach that moment where someone else is so wrong that you get to slam them with this like diabetes, uh, just kind of that validation that we get to get every now and then. I, I, I know and it's so weird. It's like, it's not their fault. Like, I right. guess it's, it's a very like misdirected kind of like anger, um, that gets to be their fault in that moment. I think the, the most common thing I get now is just the, do you have an insulin pump? I do. Yes. Yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with the like. <laughs> is that a pager? Right. There's lots and, of like you know, <laughs> lots of just one-off comedy responses of people, just random strangers. Like, hey, here's my moment. This this is a pager. Right. Right. Exactly. And yeah, and and like thinking that they've, like, you know, found this thing that no one else has ever thought to compare it to or something. And a lot of people don't even know. And so I've kind of taken to just like answering it, answering the, is this a pager question 
directly and as if they're genuinely asking, which I think usually they are. Yeah. But then I find that they'll apologize. They'll be like, oh, I'm so, so sorry. And it's right. like, you don't have anything to apologize for, you know? Just, I think it's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting response. Like that comes, I think with time and age, like people, their ignorance is not, it's not directed at you. They just don't know. And I mean, we're all the same way, unless you had a friend or a family member or have diabetes, you really don't know the difference between type one and type two and nor do you have any reason to. So I think, you know, most people are just curious and sometimes initially over the first few times, it feels like you're being attacked, but you know, really they're just curious more than anything. Yeah. And now that I think about it, like my first sort of like emotional responses to diabetes were like, I mean, it was like years. I don't, I I probably can still feel this way sometimes, but certainly like, you know, up until the end of high school, it was like those first four or five years. It was like just feeling like this unresolvable unfairness of the world. And like, what there's no reason why I should have this and it sucks. And it like, sometimes it's worst when my blood sugar is low and I'm especially emotionally susceptible, but you're just like, what, like, this is not okay. Like, Like, and, and so I think maybe that's where the like snarkiness comes from a little bit is like, this is so unfair that maybe I can, you know, react against the unfairness by like getting back at people right. who had have not done anything in the first place. Well, and I think it's especially tough at that age, you know, in high school where your hormones and uh, emotions are just going crazy all the time. Uh, mood swings high and low, especially for creative people. I was having like another conversation with a type one uh, creative person uh, in the community earlier today talking about how, you know, sometimes you feel like you're carrying a heavy load creatively and you have this responsibility to get these messages out there. And then also you have diabetes and maybe you had a bad day or two and feel like trash and, you know, just don't, don't feel like, you know, and then someone will message you asking you where something is or why you haven't done something. And it's just like in those moments, you have those kind of weak, uh, emotional, like end of your rope type feelings that I think can manifest themselves sometimes. And, they're totally okay and very natural, but I think especially as creative individuals, you can kind of feel like it's you against the world at that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I also, I think another way that I reacted, and this is probably some sort of like sublimate sublimated anger thing, uh, is taking advantage of, uh, of diabetes and like those times in the nurse's office being like, you know, I'll take another, 15 minutes here, uh, out of class or, or even like dangerously, like I would, I don't know why I didn't feel comfortable just straight up lying, but I would give myself like just a little bit too much insulin, uh, on Sunday so that I could get out of church to go, uh, get something, get a snack for my blood sugar. Um, which just felt like, well, if this is so unfair, I might as well be able to get a couple of benefits out of this. Right. And I, I think some people have the same um, the same issue at times with like pre-boarding on airplanes, uh, because as a person with diabetes, like that's an option for you. Um, although 
Is it? On, it is. And like, even though on the surface, uh, it's a disability that you can't really see, obviously. And there are many people who are, you know, world-class athletes and uh, extremely healthy individuals that you would never be able to tell. Uh, but because at some at some point the uh, the overhead bins on airplanes can fill up and you need to be able to have maybe your medicine with you or your insulin or your supplies, um, airlines will let you board early to, to go to your seat and be able to put your medical supplies uh, in the overhead bin. Whoa. So but that. so now you know there's the there's your free like tip that you got out of this podcast if you wanted to do. I typically don't do it because my supplies are easy for me to carry on my person, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. But um, some people there, there's a lot of shaming of, well, you're not truly disabled. You're not doing this, but some people I think use it as like a, Hey, I have to deal with this. I might as well get some perks out of my diabetes uh, sure. since I can. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, obviously we haven't talked about you being involved, uh, and being a comedian and being involved in the comedic community. Talk a little bit about how, you know, after, you know, you, you've grown up now, you, you've been a teenager through your teen years of diabetes, you're going to college. Uh, when did you start to, you know, find the comedic community and, um, you know, how did that start to manifest itself? And then what was that like for your diabetes, knowing that, you know, when you're doing comedy, you're often up late, you know, out of bars, drinking, eating out, um, eating at bars, you know, eating fast food, uh, with a tough schedule. What was that like? Yeah, that's interesting. I think I like mostly didn't put together the ways in which those things in, in the ways in which that stuff and that lifestyle um affected my diabetes. Um but I started really doing comedy my freshman year of college. I got really obsessed in late high school with this local um improv group that was like a short form like whose line is it anyway style um gamey improv group and my friends and i would go we, we were like yeah i mean like they were like our fish or something like we would like go see all of their shows around cincinnati and so then when i was looking for colleges one of my criteria was they've got to have an improv group and that was pretty easy because most colleges have improv groups. But right. <laughs> I ended up uh, coming to Chicago, where I still live, um, and joining like one of the oldest improv, like college improv groups there is. It, it was founded by Bernie Salins, who was one of the original Second City founders. So, um, and and I actually there were like two groups on campus, and I auditioned for both. And got didn't even get a callback for the like, you know, less. I would I would say worse one, but also I'll just say like less storied one. Um, and then got into the better one and started doing improv. Um, and I'm trying to like the thing that I think about it related to diabetes the most, and I still think about this. Like I just um, I don't I don't do improv really formally anymore uh i improvise on stage but it's all within the context of stand-up and my own like solo stuff um but i just spent a month in edinburgh scotland uh in august of this year 2018 and the so doing this one-man show that i have and i'm doing the show like 
it's one hour every day for like three and a half weeks. And, um, it was, it was an incredible experience, but every single day, um, I I've noticed, so a couple of like rituals that I have before going on stage, the first one is like peeing just constantly. Like I will pee two to five times in the hour before I go on stage, even if it's for like a 10 minute set here in Chicago. Right. And it's not always cause it's almost never because my blood sugar is high. It's just, I don't know. And, and maybe it's not related to diabetes, but that is a diabetes adjacent thing. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I, I have a similar, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing that I guess to discuss, but it's like, yeah, a, a nerves like pre-show nerves, you go, and pee it's just like a weird i don't know if it's an auto some sort of auto response from my body it's like hey we're about to do something that's uh you know a fear like step even though getting on stage after i'm sure after all these years is not as you don't have as many butterflies as you did the first time but you still there's like there's that perception that this could go really bad so you know there's the uh you know i don't know your body just flushing itself i guess totally and yeah, yeah. It, it's also like a a time in which to like get a little bit of time to yourself in a context where there may not be, you know, it might seem a little weird to like go into a corner and stare at the wall and like talk to yourself or something. So being in a bathroom is an easier place to just feel like you're getting a break from people before you have to go be, you know the sole focus of attention for right. a little while. And, but so before these shows in Edinburgh, cause it's this like giant fringe festival. It's like, I think the thing I've read about it is that it is the like third largest ticketed event in the world after the Olympics and the world cup. Um, and so it's like the biggest arts festival in the world. There's all these, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's huge. And every day before my show, I would not only pee, I would test my blood sugar. And then even if it was, yeah, I, I don't know. I have a weird, I, I, you know, after what it's been, damn, like 20, almost 22, 21 and a half years of having diabetes, like, you know, two thirds of my life at this point, I'm 34. And, um, I still don't feel like I have a perfect relationship with um, feeling appropriate to what the number is of my Mm. blood sugar. Like frequently, you know, 90 something will feel low. Um, And and I think sometimes, especially now having a continuous glucose monitor, it's like it makes sense because I'm seeing that like, Oh, it's currently 90 something, but in 10 minutes, it's about to be 65 Right, because I can see the, the trend of it. So it makes sense that my body is like feeling that quickly. But did you but find so- that, did you find that validating, uh, when that sort of happened the first time I found when I got on a continuous glucose monitor and I felt like, um, you know, I'm a little bit low, I feel low or I feel like I'm going to be low and I test and I'm still, you know, within range. Uh, and then, you know, 15 minutes later, you're like, oh yeah, like I do know myself. Was that validating to you at all? Or did it just kind of throw another wrench in the, in the engine? No, it's definitely validating. Uh, it's, it's crazy the amount, I mean, and the other thing is too, like my, 
my tendency, I think I probably err on the side of not trusting the numbers. Not that I don't trust them, just that like if what I'm feeling is high and I can tell that it's going down, but I'm still at like 230 and I feel, you know, the dry mouth and the like blurry, not blurry. For me, it's not blurry, but it's that like kind of like pulsy eyes or something like sticky eyes is the way I would describe it. But, um, I will give myself too much insulin, not cause I'm like trying to go low, but just cause I want to feel normal as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm not saying that this is like a good idea, but then if it's, if I feel low and I'm 90, I'm going to have a little bit of juice or something just cause I want to feel normal as quickly as possible. Um, but I also, before these shows in Edinburgh would, uh, you know, when I was feeling low and it was around 90 or something, sometimes I would just set a lower basal rate for the hour so that I could, uh, I was like, you know, I probably am not going to go acutely low, but I just want to have a little bit of a lower baseline during this period of stress and activity. Um, but if it, sometimes it was like, actually low beforehand and I would have to stall the show for 10 minutes um, while I had a Coke. And and so basically in terms of how diabetes affects my performance, a lot of it is artificially hovering in the like 150 to 180 range for like, cause I'd rather do that than, than be at 75 for, an entire performance. Right. Um, so there's that, but then in terms of the lifestyle, like, I don't know, like now my perspective is so different cause I'm, uh, a sober guy now and, and, and I'm very aware of the ways in which like the comedy lifestyle is not, does not have to be one specific thing, but certainly there's that like stereotype of the way people drink and eat and live and, um, yeah, I just I just didn't pay attention to it and like the like I I got so empowered but like falsely empowered by the insulin pump being like when you know when people would be like, "Oh, can you eat that?" like you know, "Oh, so sorry, like we have these things or whatever." I would be like, "No, I can eat whatever. I have an insulin pump." So, you know, I can eat just like everybody else, right. not paying attention to the fact that like, well, the way you're eating is actually not like everybody else. You're like going way too hard on the sweets or the fried foods or whatever. Um, and it's almost like the ego response is, you know, yeah. even if you don't really want to, you just want to prove them wrong or prove that you're normal. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I was definitely my like active comedy days definitely coincided with the beginning stages, you know, of alcoholism and, uh, just years of eating yeah just eating without any mind toward how it was actually affecting me or my diabetes and uh you know at that time it wasn't it didn't seem like alcoholism i'm like oh i'm i'm uh i'm i'm partying it's it's college this is right. how everyone drinks and then you know 5 years later i'm the only one who's still drinking like that um but so so yeah, it was, it, I think the, you know, the like too long didn't read answer of everything I just said is that it is not 
I, I didn't acknowledge or pay attention to the ways in which my routines, schedule, diet were affecting my diabetes. And that was, I was able to do that for so long because I was drunk or high hmm. for so long. And I think that kind of leads us into the next phase of the story, right? And into the sort of mm-hmm. This American Life story, because that lifestyle, the the results were dramatic. They weren't just, you know, incremental as we would, you know, maybe think, you know, a couple high A1Cs here and there. It was a drastic, you know, the lifestyle choices that you had made and not being mindful in those took you to a place that, you know, some people don't come back from and nearly, you know, you almost didn't come back from. Yeah, man. Gucci Mane said, rock star lifestyle, Mike, don't make it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> Shout out yeah, to Franchise so, Boys. Yeah. Where do we Where do we go? Where do you want to... Uh... Yeah. Uh, well, so the story is, and uh, and I think I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but you, uh, your blood sugars had been high for an extended period of time, and then there was some event, and I, you feel free to walk us through it if you like, that pushed your blood sugars so high that you uh, ended up in a coma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during that time, uh, one of your friends or family members had um, put on Facebook that the doctors were recommending that you be taken off life support. And so for people to write in their uh, their memories and so and, and, and wish you well while they still could. And and then, you know, over the course uh, of, all, of a few weeks, maybe months, um, I think the story was that your dad came in and just greeted you like he had been the entire time you'd been in a coma and then you suddenly woke up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean like that, that I just, the, the way I delivered that is like, doesn't seem very profound, but like you were gone and, and came back. Yeah, no, for sure. I was in a coma for, uh, three and a half weeks and then in the hospital for another three and a half weeks after that. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly one event, although of course there was a point at which I was comatose rather than, uh, conscious, but it was, it was mostly a result of like, yeah, this addiction stuff, this like poor diabetes management, not even realizing it. And also I was selling my test strips and so just, uh, testing very infrequently and pretty much on a, you know, the way in which like, okay, if you spend enough time at 200, 200 starts to feel like 120 and, you know, so on with 250 and 300. And so it's like my sugars are rising and rising and rising and I'm feeling, you know, quote unquote normal right. or too high to realize that I'm not normal. And then one weekend I just, I started going into DKA and throwing up and to like, you know, high and out of it to get with the program and call a hospital. So I just, you know, uh, stayed in my bed and smoked weed about it and went into a coma and, um, my roommate found me. Uh, and yeah, so, so yeah, the, the, the kind of, I think, dramatic stuff is that I was almost taken off life support because um, there just there was a certain point where the hospital that I was at in Chicago 
um, before my family transferred me to a hospital in Cincinnati. Um, the hospital in Chicago just wasn't equipped to handle my case. They didn't really know what they could do. Um, my family saw me suffering a ton and just, it, it just seemed pretty hopeless. And, and there wasn't the, the call for people to come like celebrate me was actually like in person. It was like before they were going to take me off of life support in Chicago. My family invited all my friends to the hospital to say goodbye. And then at some point after that, you know, people started making assumptions. They were like, well, you know, he's gone at this point. Hmm. And, and then the tidal wave of Facebook eulogies began. Um, people just started posting like memories. And so in terms of what my family said on Facebook, it was actually my brother who told people like, Hey, please stop talking about him in the past tense. Cause he's still alive where we haven't done anything yet. Um, so it was, it was actually a corrective from my family rather okay. than like, an encouragement. But, uh, but yeah, the, all of those eulogies were like, like they're still up there. November 13th, 2014, I can go back and see what people said about me when they thought I was dead, uh, which is a very like surreal thing. And, uh, and yeah, then I was transferred to a hospital in Cincinnati, um, and woke up after like three days and, uh, you know, there's no adequate explanation for why there are like, you know, certain factors, but nothing that's like, oh, great. And now we feel that this has been fully explained and wrapped up and we have no um, need to explore it anymore. It's just this kind of mysterious thing. Um, and what's that like? What's it, that like for you to I mean, outside of diabetes, just to. I don't know, just kind of help me walk me through the, obviously it's a huge emotional moment for you and your family to process, but just an unexplainable, inexplicable uh, phenomenon, I guess. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's frustrating, man. Cause I, I'm like, on one hand, like I, I think about these big, like existential questions a lot. And, and, you know, even before this, that was like definitely a, um, you know, I'm like the guy hanging out in the like spirituality section of the bookstore and and thinking about this stuff. And part of it is like I would kind of like very specific, definite answers to some of these questions. Like yeah, I would be OK if someone was like, this is exactly the nature of the universe. This is uh, the nature of consciousness. This is what happens when you die. And I'd be like, great, uh, you know, th thank you for some, I'm not just like questioning to question, but right. then, then you realize that like, well, if you're going to ask these kinds of questions, you're never going to get, uh, completely solid answers. So you are questioning to question. Um, and so in some ways it's like, it's scary, but it's empowering because you have these, this mysterious, event so the onus then comes back on me to interpret it and to be like okay well either it, i i get to choose what i think about this and why and you know it's helpful for me not to not to try to try to like resist that urge to like be completely black and white and and 
and clear about a thing that's not clear. Um, so on one hand, it's like frustrating, but on the other hand, it's kind of empowering. It's like, well, it's not just a cut and dry, you know, you were sick and then they gave you this medicine and now you're better. It's like, I don't know, my, my sort of belief system is certainly centered around mystery anyway. And so this kind of just feeds into that a little bit. Well, it's kind of like the, I, I like taking the ownership of making the choice um, that you, uh, whether, whether you can explain it or not. Now the onus is on you to interpret it for yourself and make the decisions accordingly. Um, because that's all we can compare it to, right? It's all we have is what those choices were given. So even though there are maybe more questions, now you have a choice to make. Um, and you know, now we're talking about it on this podcast, uh, you know, four years later, what, what choices did you make? What was the, as, as you kind of got back acclimated to, you know, being awake and recovered, you know, what were your first inclinations for how you were going to go forward? Yeah. Well, so I, when I woke up, the, the, the first question, like the most common question people ask is like, do you remember anything? from being in the coma. And that has a very definitive answer, which is just no. Right. Like there's, I do, I did not have any sort of out of body experience. I didn't hear voices. It was just going into the coma, which was a fuzzy process. You know, I'm like in and out of consciousness as I'm going comatose. And then coming out was a fuzzy process because I was on a lot of sedatives. So if anything, not only do I not remember anything from within the coma, there are sort of the bookends of going in and coming out that are even a little fuzzy. Right. Um, but so when I woke up, I thought that I was in rehab for alcohol um, and had this sort of like heart to heart moment with my parents or, you know, what I thought was a heart to heart moment where I was like, you know, mom and dad, like I, I get it. And, you know, I've decided that I'm going to stop drinking and th and that, which made them happy. But, uh, you know, I had a little bit more to learn about why I was actually there. Right. But so that was my first inclination was like, I need to make a definitive change in my life. And that change is to stop drinking. And I actually like kept like that, you know, I have not drank since, waking up from the coma. What I did return to is getting high. And for me, that was mostly like, it's like smoking weed was the, the way uh, that I was avoiding my life. And I, you know, after a couple months after getting out of the hospital, like I had this open tracheotomy scar. And so I, I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm pilfering some things from the the one man show I do about this stuff. Uh, it's called Dave Mar coma show. And I, but yeah, so the, the bit and it's true is that the very last day that I was in the hospital, I was like waiting for my mom to pull the car up to the lobby. And I was just on my phone, like Googling if you could smoke weed with a tracheostomy. Hmm. And I, so eventually that, and the answer was mostly no and it healed. And so then I got back to Chicago, started getting high again. And this sort of like definitive epiphany moment felt like it was receding. And so I was like, this is not okay. Like I, I need to, 
this was an opportunity to make some like big changes. So, so sobriety is like the, the biggest change. And then along with that, that kind of paved the way for, you know, once you're not high constantly, you have a certain amount of clarity in your life that allows you to make other changes. Um, and so realizing like, okay, now that I'm sober, uh, you know, it, it would really help to pay attention to this, uh, continuous glucose monitor. And I'm trying to remember, I think it wasn't, I think I didn't get the CGM until after the coma. I'm almost, I'm almost positive. So, so, and the CGM was a huge game changer. Yeah. Me. Uh, like my, 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 I don't remember the last A1C that was over 6.5 for me, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, and, and I'm like very proud of that. So, and, and that had a huge part in that. And then just eating healthier. Um, I actually like, uh, went into recovery for the like food issues as well. And so now I, I have some, some things that I just steer clear of entirely. Um, I call it recreational sugar, which is a very, uh, intuitive and kind of nebulous category that might look very different for someone else, but I know what it means for me. Um, and so through changing the way I ate and then starting to get more active. And a lot of that was, I've always kind of experimented with things, the thing that like really made the change. So after like getting sober, going into recovery for like many different behaviors and, and substances, like I peeled away all these layers of the onion. And then the core was this like, it, you know, so it's, it like doesn't fit into the narrative of like, went into a coma, got sober, and life is much better now because the reality is that like a couple of years in things got way worse because I just didn't have any of the coping mechanisms that I was using to cope with life. Right. And so I like last year, actually, I went into treatment for depression and that was a big game changer. I mean, after like six or eight weeks of doing that, I came out. And it, it felt like I was completely like a, like, like a 33 year old, like newborn baby, just in terms of the equipment I had to deal with the world. Like everything was new. Everything was people talk about having to relearn things when you get sober, like how to be at a party without drinking. And I never felt that stuff until after treatment, because that was when I had been like completely stripped of things and but in treatment they talked a lot about like you know what are ways that you can like live in your body and and get out into the world and, and enjoy yourself and like activity was a big one uh and so i like I, I i took a swim class and uh that was a, a big game changer because i'd never known how to do the like freestyle with the breathing. And so I was like, you know, this is a thing. I'm going to humble myself, take a swim class with a bunch of like Mexican teenagers and old Polish and Chinese grandmas. And 
I'll be in there and I'll learn how to swim. And it was like super fun. And that was the thing that was like, oh, this is like an exercise I can do for the rest of my life. And so all those sorts of things together have slowly, even, even when I have had epiphanies, there are, it, it like doesn't make a difference. Like just, just having this like revelatory moment kind of doesn't matter if you can't back it up with like daily action that supports the change. Um, well, and I think it's, I mean, we live in like quick fix culture. Uh, and I, I spend a lot of time talking about falling in love with incremental progress. So I love, yes, I love that. I, I love that. Like your, your fix was not one thing. And I think in diabetes, especially your health, you know, experts will be talking about, well, if you eliminate this one thing, you'll get X. So, you know, I love it wasn't just addiction. It wasn't just food. It wasn't just exercise. It wasn't just mental health and, and self-care. It was the holistic approach. And you had to really relearn all of it. Because if there's one thing I think a lot of our listeners know, I mean, people that listen to diabetes podcasts are in like the top 5% of diabetes managers are all around, right? Right. So, I mean, the people who really need this type of information won't get it through this po- podcast yet. Unfortunately, that's a big problem I'm still trying to solve is how do we reach the, you know, the silent majority. But, you know, I think the di- diabetes is so complex. There's everything from not getting the right amount of sleep to not drinking amount of water or just having a stressful conversation or, um, you know, some, a barista putting uh, sugary syrup in your coffee instead of sugar free. Like all of these things that can affect you drastically. Uh, so I love that your journey from a coma to where you are today is is not just one thing. It's just learning and kind of relearning how you know, your body responds to these things and uh, you know whether it's mental health or actual physical health and well-being and what you put into your body um, and all very difficult and challenging things at times so I appreciate you being you know open and honest with you know how it hasn't been just rainbows and butterflies since you you know came out of a coma yeah for sure um, well, Dave, man, I, I, I think we're, that's kind of a good stopping point maybe for today for us, but I think I did want to thank you, uh, for telling your story and, and coming on to the podcast. I think a lot of people are going to really benefit from, uh, hearing your story and just like such a real and, um, relatable way. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you as a performer, this, this episode just was such a fun thing to follow. I kind of found myself like following along, uh, instead of doing the interview rather than, uh, you know, just being a listener. So, um, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Can I, uh, can I give you like the website info that I would point people to if they're interested? Oh, absolutely. Part of this podcast is absolutely to plug yourself. So social media websites, one man show tickets, uh, there's going to be a group of type one diabetic, uh, bloggers, influencers, advocates in Chicago, uh, in November. So, uh, if you have a show or something, just like plug it, this is the time. Cool. Yeah. I don't have like, I am planning to tour Dave Marcoma show. I don't have specific dates for that yet, but all of that stuff will be up on my website, which can be either DaveMarcomashow.com or this is DaveMar.com. And that's my stuff on all social media is just this is Dave Mar. So Twitter, Instagram, yeah, whatever. Awesome. Well, uh, we will definitely tag you 
not only in the show notes, but uh, on Instagram as well. And um, again, Dave, just thanks so much for, for taking the time and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing all the positive reactions from this episode. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. I really appreciate it, man.